bottom, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software, Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality, it's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M, like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the edifice complex sent you there. In a world where high-performance zero-defect buildings are hard to find, two men are on a mission to disrupt the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex, the property design and development podcast. Let your hosts, Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean, keep you up with who is innovating and doing great work, perspective on the adjacent possible, and challenges to the status quo. Welcome to the Edifice Complex. I'm Robert Bean, your co-host and unofficial mediator, here with my colleague, official agitator, friend, and Yoda to most everything to do with buildings, Mr. Adam Muggleton. Say hello, sir, Yoda. Hello, Yoda. And I am excited today because we are super international today. We're going down to the Asia Pacific and specifically New Zealand, a place I am is on my dream list to go to. Absolutely. So today's guest is I and Adam's type of agitator. She's a full-time PhD candidate at Auckland University researching green building rating tools and their effect on the property industry. And if I recall, she just submitted her PhD thesis for review. So we'll talk about that. She has a strong opinion about the world of architecture and sustainability, and that would make both Jerry Utilson and Henry Gifford proud, and uh, lately has been speaking our language. So, Rochelle Aday, you recently quoted another agitator, productivity guru Edward Deming, who said, without data, you are just another person with an opinion, (laughs) which we love that. And it seems there are many in the rating community that don't like the data you're digging up. You have openly talked about what it's like drawing that line in the sand and holding strong to your position, which is why Adam and I admire your passion. And we're glad to have you on the program. We like people who like their status quo shaken, not stirred. Right, Adam? Absolutely. Well put, actually. Well put. I like that. (laughs) So, Rochelle, tell us your story. Wow, it's a long and winding tale. Are you ready? Are you you prepared for the journey? Strapped in. My background probably reads a little bit like a drunken sailor in that I started studying electrical engineering, loved it for a little bit, then in my final year decided I hated it and never wanted to see it again. So left university um, a little bit aimlessly and my father, who was a civil engineer, went, you can't be aimless, so come work with me, please. So I moved straight into designing marinas with my dad and I did that for a couple of years, designing floating marinas. And it was right at the time of the America's Cup that was held in New Zealand. So I ended up designing marinas around and the bases with my dad for the America's Cup sailing teams, made some contacts there and actually ended up working as a project manager for an America's Cup sailing team for a little while. And that was my first exposure to project management rather than engineering. So I kept that up and delved into construction project management for 10 years and worked around the world and the Middle East and the UK as well um, and in the States because it was an America's Cup, an American America's Cup sailing team. And then about 10 years ago, so that was my first 10 years. And then 10 years ago, I went, you know what? 
I like green building. And that was when I was living in the Middle East. So I took a role as the head of sustainability for Bovis Lendlease in the Middle East. And that's when I moved full time into looking at green buildings and green building rating tools and using them. So I've got experience with Bream and LEED and Green Star, Green Star New Zealand, Green Star Australia, Passive House, Living Building Challenge, you know, the beautiful plethora of green building rating tools that are out there. And I had the first 10 years and the last 10 years, I seem to do this every 10 years. I've decided there's an interlude in my career where I go, you know what, I don't like this anymore. So I decided I didn't like project management anymore and I moved into green building. And now I've gone, I don't really like green building anymore. I don't think it's working. <laughs> and so I'm moving on ahead. Okay, that's, uh, I like that last bit. You don't think green build is working. I couldn't agree more with that. I think it's a cargo cult. And it's almost as bad as a Me Too movement in a way in terms of like it's shaming and if you're in, you're in and if you're out, you're out. And the thing that sort of turned me on and maybe noticed you online was how you were getting a lot of hate from the cargo cult or green building in terms of the research you were putting out. But before we get into that, I want to talk about that. You're our first guest from the Asia Pacific region. So what is the current state of play? How would you describe the green building movement in that part of the world? There's a lot going on. Obviously, I'm not as, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't really know as much about the Asia part. So I do know that they've obviously, they have adopted a bit of BREAM. So they've got um, HK or Hong Kong BEAM and Japan's got CASB and Singapore's got ScreenMark. And there's quite a bit of research around those tools as well. They're based on other things, but I'm not an expert there. So I, I wouldn't really want to comment too much on that. But in New Zealand and Australia, of course, I'm not saying I'm an absolute expert here either, but we use GreenStar and GreenStar was loosely derived from Bream and Lead originally. And we have Green Star Australia, which has been around for over 10 years now, Green Star New Zealand. And there's also actually Green Star Africa, which is interesting. So oh, there's three areas. I know, and all the people don't, but yeah, there's Green Star Africa. So it came out of South Africa and it's used a little bit more widely around that area of Africa. So the southern half of Africa. And Green Star is Interestingly, in Australia, used for commercial buildings and multi-unit residential. In New Zealand, it's only used for commercial, even though it can be used for residential buildings. And New Zealand Green Building Council put out their own rating tool for residential buildings. And one of my lines in the sand, as you call them one day, because I was delivering Green Star training on behalf of the New Zealand Green Building Council, which I've done for quite a few years. And they had up on the slides that you can't use Green Star for residential. And I went, that's a lie. You can. You don't want people to use Green Star for residential because you want them to use Homestar. But you can, in fact, do it. You can't use it for single family standalone detached housing, but you can use it for apartment buildings. And quite frankly, they should be using it for apartment buildings because it's better than oh. Homestar. In that. <laughs> so, so that was the end of your career there then? <laughs> No, it took a little bit more than that. They actually agreed with me at that point in time, went, yes, you're right, you can do it. So we should, we will take that off of the slides. So they did do that. <laughs> I was like, that's I just a it. lie. You can't put that out there. I understand what you're trying to do, but you can't teach people that. So I love that. Uh, I love that. So Rochelle, I got to tell you, so I'm involved with ASHRAE Standard 55, and I don't know if you're familiar with Standard 55, but it's thermal environmental conditions. Yeah. So about 10 years ago, we got into some heated debates about the application of 55 in residential buildings. And there's a real big pushback from the residential community that, no, that was commercial buildings only. And my argument was, you know what? If someone's blind, how do they know whether they're in a commercial building or a residential building? Right? End of discussion, right? And so then, of course, I requested an official interpretation from ASHRAE 55, SSPC 55. And of course, you can apply this stuff to residential buildings. And so uh, kudos for you for taking stuff that has, it, there's no borders to this. I mean, it's application of, of knowledge that we have and whether a person's in a commercial building or a residential or it's a commercial structure or residential or institutional for that matter, it all is applicable. Well, what was interesting to me with that application not being recommended in New Zealand was just solely because they had a different rating tool that they wanted to be used in that context, mm -hmm. even though it wasn't as good as the rating tool that Australia used. So to, to circle back, Australia uses Green Star in the commercial and residential space. New Zealand uses Green Star in the commercial space, but Homestar in the residential space. And I don't know what Africa does actually in the residential space, but they've obviously got Green Star there as well. We also have Passive House in New Zealand and Australia. So it's a much smaller movement with not as much adoption. However, it is growing. There's a couple of living building challenge projects. The first one in Australia was just certified the other day. And we have one, the first actually outside of America that was certified in New Zealand and the world was built in Taniatua in New Zealand. So there's a, there's a little bit going on in this space, but it is generally focused around green building rating tools of some shape of description or description. So how would you say 
so for instance, I was at a conference, this was quite a few years ago now, and some guy was giving a presentation about some lead platinum building he'd done in Canada. And this Swiss guy stood up, he said, basically in a very nice and polite way, which was awesome on its own, he said, you know, your lead platinum, I shit that. You know, that's our basic building code where I come from. <laughs> and he just walked out. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so we have the same, or I actually think I said it the other day. I can't remember the context if it was online or if I was speaking to somebody, but it was basically around the idea that all of these green building rating tools, and I am going to include lead. I'm not 100% sure about Bream actually anymore, but what they tend to do, particularly with energy modeling is and water efficiency, is they go, what does a bad building use? Okay. Here we go. So this is how much oh, it was to do with carbon footprints. Actually, this is what the context when we were talking about mm-hmm. upfront carbon and carbon footprints for operational efficiency. And someone was asking me, well, why don't you put a reference into what a normal building does or uses? And I'm like, that is the worst possible reference you can use. So basically, you're going to say to me, this is a shit building and my building is a little bit better than the shit building. So now it's a green building. That's just, no, what we need to be doing is building buildings, not just slightly less bad buildings. And yeah. any green building rating tool, I think that includes a reference model of a bad building. You should just walk away from it straight away. What we and this is what um, we have a here in New Zealand called Brands, which is Building Research Association in New Zealand, and they for residential dwellings and hopefully they'll do it for commercial soon. They've taken the worldwide carbon budget, they've allocated it to New Zealand, then they've allocated it down to building types, and then they've basically worked out a budget for every home in New Zealand and new homes and existing homes and how much carbon you can use if we're all going to meet guidelines. And I think we should either A, use zero as our reference, so we should all be on a race to zero. It's like, we can't use carbon, let's go to zero. And we can do that. Of course, we're going to use carbon, but we can offset it. through on-site generation or planting trees or things like that. Or in the worst case, if you really want to compare to something, you should compare to your budget. I think the budget should be zero, but if you have to have some kind of comparison, you should be comparing what you're building and operating to a carbon budget that is allocated for you in your country for your use case, not to a ground building. (laughs) So you're basically, you're advocating for a carbon-based metric all the way, right? Well, I must admit, I'm not a big fan of carbon either. It's what everyone's talking about and what everybody's using. I think the focus, this is my personal opinion, the focus on carbon allows us to ignore other environmental impacts to our detriment. So we're in New Zealand, one of our big topics of conversation is around the degradation of waterways, particularly from our intensive farming. If we all just focus on reducing carbon, we're not going to improve the health of our waterways because carbon may have some relation, but doesn't have a huge relation to the other environmental impacts that are a part of a life cycle analysis. And when you talk to people, and this is where I tell brands off a little bit, who I love, by the way, but they go, people are only interested in carbon. So when we're talking about LCA, let's just give them the carbon results. I know the rest of it's really important as well. We want to know what we're doing to the atmosphere in terms of other chemicals. We need to understand what we're doing to our water and our waterways. We want to know what's going on with the coral reefs. It's not just carbon. So we need to take a step back and be a little bit more holistic than just carbon and understand our impact of buildings across a wider range of measures. Mm. Mm. So one of my takeaways from what you just said there was, for now on, Lee Platinum to me will be shipbuilding plus four. (laughs) (laughs) And gold will be ship plus three. I'm not sure if you saw it online, but I did a recent grading of green building rating tools around the world. And because I'm at the University of Auckland yeah. at the moment, I am um, grading as of interest because PhD students get graded and we grade other students. And so I took the grading scale that the university uses and I just worked out based on the number of points that you need to achieve in each rating tool to get to each rating level, what kind of grade would you get for the building designed to that? And my point there was get Green Star is horrific because I think what we call a world-leading building here in New Zealand and Australia, which is six Green Star, was only a B minus. So for us down in Asia Pacific, a B minus grade building is world-leading. Where at least for Bream and Lead, you guys get up in the A. So you're not Lead Platinum, but Lead Zero, based on the number of points you need to achieve in the tool, and whether or not that's relevant is a different discussion. But at least mm. you need to do quite a bit within the rating tool to get to the higher levels of rating. Whereas in New Zealand, our highest rating is equivalent to a B minus compared to the A's for 
the States and the UK. So we've got some serious problems down here. And then when you put it in the context of is what's in the tools even relevant to designing a better building, the situation just gets worse. So what would you say is the best building rating system, in your opinion, based on that analysis? I don't think there is one. Uh, I don't like rating systems. I think they should all be abolished, quite frankly. I think they give us a false sense of reality and that we should, we've got this beautiful little sticky plaster green thing that we can plonk on a building and go, look, it's great. It's one, it's, it's a lead platinum or it's a lead zero or it's actually lead zero is probably not too bad. What I like is standards. It's seriously. Yeah. So why would you have a rating of a building? It's like everything should be good. Everything should perform to a basic standard. So we need to have, and I like Passive House for this reason, because it says everybody should have a home that, or a building, because it's not just for residential. Everyone's building should perform like this. It should be very low energy and it should be comfortable on the inside. And it's just a standard. If you don't hit the requirements, you don't get the certification. Going four, five, six, and the argument the Green Building Councils make, because I've heard it so many times, is that, ah, but we need to move industry slowly. We don't want to scare the horses. We need to do incremental <laughs> steps. It's wonderful. We, we start to engage with industry. They, they're going to push back, so we lead them on this journey. And it's like, that's great. Do we have time for this particular journey? So if we've got goals that we need in 2030, is your journey going to get us there in time? If no. If people are sick and dying today because their buildings are unhealthy, is your journey going to save those people or are they just, you know, what's where collateral damage of the journey? So it doesn't matter. I'm so sorry that you're sick and dying of mold or you've got asthma. That's okay. You're collateral damage on our journey to better buildings for the people who come after you. Yeah. Well, it just seems like they're travel planners. Typically, <laughs> 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 people who work in all these places, they're hard in the right place. There's no denying that they're there for the right reasons. I think it's the application that's going a little awry. And one of the things I've come to conclude over the years is that green building rating tools were set up by industry for industry. And they're practically meaningless for everybody else. They're a way for industry to go, hey, look what we did. It's great. Let's pat ourselves on the back. The architect gets a plaque. The developer gets a plaque. Everyone gets a plaque to stick on the wall. No one really goes back in and goes, this was lovely, but how's it actually performing? Are these people happier and healthier? Is the building performing better? What is the energy use? That doesn't get talked about very much. And the academics who do go and study it, they're not finding results in accordance with the claims of the green building rating tools, with the exception of Passive House. So Passive House has been documented to perform, although that does have a small issue in terms of overheating occasionally. So putting it all out there to be quite clear. So it's a little bit of a problem that we have. I like your analogy in terms of the journey and, you know, it's an, it's almost like they're looking at this as an, as an adventure and it's not an adventure. These are life and death. You know, these are decisions that we're making today that have consequences for tomorrow. This can't be a, you know, like, here's your itinerary over the next 10 years. Enjoy the ride. Like, <laughs> that's not how this is going to, in 10, in 10 years, we're going to look back and we're going to go, well, that was not the right trip that we were on. Right? No, we went around to Antarctica instead of getting to the Caribbean. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah no, I, I like I like that analogy. You know, I agree with you on the whole standard process. And going back to your rating, B minus is a world class building in New Zealand. Here we always make reference to building codes as a D grade. And in a competitive market, in a free market system where price sometimes rules the day. You have people that are building D grade, trying to be less money than a D grade, and so you get a lot of Fs. Right, we have a lot of building failures, and the failure, the F mark, occurs because the benchmark is so low. And until we change the benchmark, and the, how we do that is by implementing standards. And so I'm totally with you on your approach. We shouldn't yeah. need any sort of writing. It's just here is the standard that everyone builds to because this will provide a healthy, comfortable, carbon neutral. I don't even know the word because you know I don't like carbon neutral, non-planetary killing building. <laughs> it, it's yeah. difficult because this is where I get my tin full hat on here. Path dependency. Do you know booster rockets on spaceships, the size of them goes back to a path dependency that goes back to the size of a Roman chariot? Mm-hmm. Right? That <laughs> yeah, is true. The, path yeah, the, width, yeah, the width of yeah. a railway car to yeah. car to NASA. Yeah, right. So path dependency is the most powerful force that no one realizes. You know, you throw on top of that the corruption and lobbying in the construction industry. 
Now, I'm a full mm. red-blooded capitalist and recovering libertarian, but things like this, I believe, the only way to affect change is through legislation. Yeah, and that's what you see. So in Australia, one of the rating tools they do use is called Neighbours, and Neighbours, they have it for energy efficiency, water, IEQ, and waste. And it is a performance-based rating tool. Not too bad. It's got star ratings again, four, five, six. And but what it does do is it goes in and measures the actual energy use and gives a rating on that basis of a building. They mandated that for use 10 years ago and they document improvements in energy efficiency in Australia because of this. Where that particular system itself falls down, which is another issue that I can't stand with green building rating tools, is that they go... You can rate the base building, you can rate a tenancy, or you can rate the whole building. So what you will get is buildings out there that have a really good base building rating, and that's what's actually mandated. You have to mandate the base building because that then allows developers and tenants to have an understanding of the energy efficiency of the building. They can go in and go, oh, it's a six. Then they can use however much energy they want. They can put in the most energy-hungry equipment, lights, whatever. Makes no difference. So the ratings don't change if you're doing a base building. So Greenstar does this. Lead used to do it. It probably still does. It's because it was a, all these tools are industry-driven, written by industry, for industry. It means that the architects and the developers can go, look, I designed this beautiful building. It's designed not to use very much energy. Give me my rating. Pat on the back. I don't really care what the tenants do because they're tenants. I can't control them. They're just going to go and pretty much compromise everything I've designed through their fit-outs, but that, okay, it's still a lead platinum building. And yeah. I stand back and look and go, I don't understand. We're looking at this building. It's the worst performing building in the world more than likely, but it's got this beautiful green plaque on it because we only looked at the base building. When are we going to eliminate base building ratings and go, you can only rate a whole building. We need to look at the base building. We need to look at all the tenants. If your tenants aren't on board and you want a rating, you need to get them on board because what we'll do is we'll disclose your base building use. We'll disclose the tenants that are on board, but you don't get certified until everyone's told us what's going on in the building. It's very straightforward. Yeah, you know, I love the approach that architects and engineers to some degree take that it's the tenant's fault. <laughs> it's always the tenant's fault. And it's said in social housing as well. It's the, the social housing tenant. They're to blame for the buildings not performing right. I designed yeah. it fine. Yeah. You see, everywhere, the occupants are always to blame. Yeah, yeah that, that, that is such a BS excuse, right? You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. <laughs> but what you're advocating for yeah. is transparency. We are a bit to blame. Yeah, we but are. Because we let them get away with stuff. It's about incentives and disincentives, right? And what you're advocating for is basically transparency with incentives, right? Well, so, I'm sort of saying we're all part of a symbiotic system. Yeah. Mm. So you, the base building operating by itself, which is what we analyze in green building rentals, that never exists. That's not reality. The reality is we build something, people do fit outs in it, and then people live and work in them. And that's reality. It is a symbiosis between the building and the occupants. And every single rating tool I've ever come across divorces the two. They go, yeah. occupants don't matter. We're going to normalize their behavior and response and then pretend that everything's okay. And I go, you can't do that. If you really want to have an understanding of what's going on in the world and if something's energy efficient, water efficient, carbon efficient, whatever metric you want to look at, you've got to look at the building and the occupants as one entity whoever those occupants yeah. are. And what most people miss is that educational feedback loop to go, hey, occupant, we've noticed that you're using, well, on level 12, you use five times the amount of energy than they do on level six for the same number of people. What's up? Can we help? Let's help mm. improve. We all live on one planet. It's not like there's the little planet B just hiding behind us that goes, it's okay. You can still be bad. We'll bring some energy over from our planet. It just doesn't exist. You're spot on with the holistic approach, though, because I will, the way I always talk about it when I present is a building is a stool with three legs, right? So there's the base building. That's just one leg. And everyone in that team is gone. They've rubbed it off their resume. If it's a bad job and they're on to the next one, right, they're out. And then there's the maintenance of FM. And then there's yep. the tenant and the use, right? And until yep. them three are pulled together and held accountable yep. together, it's a losing proposition, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And nobody does that. People, and the answer is, and this comes from Green Building Councils, oh, it's too hard. It's too hard to do that. <laughs> have have I, either of you ever sat in on an integrated design process meeting about how they define integrated design? I, I just finished uh -huh. doing one. And the discussion, the human factor didn't even enter the discussion. <laughs> it was all about 
land development and professionals, you know, what of the civil engineers, mechanical and architectural engineers. At no point in the discussion was the occupant or the tenants ever brought into the discussion. And ultimately, these are the people that use the tool, the buildings, the mechanical electrical systems. They ought to be the first thing that we talk about, right? But that doesn't matter. Yeah, and that doesn't happen in the real world. So that's one of the fundamental problems that we have is that we forgot about human factor design and architecture. It needs to become part of the discussion. Two colleagues of ours, Nate Adams and Ted Kidd, they said that energy efficiency ought to be an outcome of achieving the indoor environment rather than, right? And so one of the... Yeah, yeah. And so one of the problems we have, another problem we have in the industry is so much focus is on energy, conservation and efficiency, which are good. There's no, I'm not arguing that they're not good, but these should be outcomes of actually designing, constructing and operating and building for the benefit of the occupant. Couldn't agree more. And with the current pandemic floating around the world, some of these things are just becoming more and more obvious. We're not designing our buildings to the indoor environment quality that we all need and deserve to be healthy, happy and comfortable. And I have just been this morning actually trolling through some of the academic literature, trying to look for people who are measuring the humidity of buildings, particularly in New Zealand, so I could understand what, how, has who studied it. Everyone's looking at temperature, everyone looks at energy efficiency. There's no one out there who's going, oh, how often do we keep our buildings within the appropriate healthy relative humidity range so we're not exposed to viruses and bacteria and fungi? People aren't talking about the right things. We're focused on carbon. And we're not focused on health. Yeah. Health of health and health of the planet. Now, how many projects do you know where the basic building personalization is even thought about or controlled? Well, no. We don't right. do we don't do blower door testing in New Zealand, so Oh really? <laughs> no, it's not required. It's only just starting to be talked about in New Zealand. And obviously it's a passive house requirement that you do that. So it's getting a little bit more FaceTime in terms of New Zealand residential. And I only mean a, a minute amount. Commercially, not even covered. It is now a point in the new Green Star rating tool that you could do lower door testing of your buildings that you build to understand what the leakiness rate is of the what you've designed. Mm. It should be mandatory. Every single building, everything that's constructed should undergo a blower door test to understand how good is the thermal envelope. Yeah. So, Rochelle, you're going to get amusement out of this. When I graduated in 1983, our standard practice back then was dedicated ventilation, no recirculated air high-performance enclosures, and underfloor heating systems. That was it. That's all I've ever done for 35, 40 years. I will die probably, you know, in another 20 years from now, and the full circle will have come around, and I'll probably take my last breath going, you finally got it. (laughs) (laughs) More than likely, we have to talk about the fact in New Zealand, so we're talking about how good we are down here. New Zealand and Australia, we're 20, 30 years behind the rest of the world on what we should be designing. And we've had a huge, over the last 10 to 15 years, a huge what we call the leaky building crisis, where we tried to build homes out of cheaper materials. Well, not even cheaper materials. We just tried to make things easier and more cost-effective to build more homes quickly. And it basically resulted in leaky facades that rotted timber that grew very nasty molds that caused illness in homes. So we've undergone this amazing journey here of building rubbish and now trying to remediate it, but we're not remediating it with good homes still. We're still re- we're not learning the lessons from overseas. We're just repeating all the mistakes that have been made in the past. So well, I'm, why I'm grinning, Adam, because you know in Vancouver – we had the leaky condo crisis. Yeah, leaky condo yeah. crisis and, it, and it's like New Zealand actually looks like they, you guys picked up the playbook and said, oh, here's yeah. some good idea. Let's do what Let's the do people that. in Vancouver did. <laughs> yeah, exactly right. And um, when I was doing a paper for my PhD, actually, my two supervisors both ended up with a leaky home. And so we studied that in one of my papers for my PhD, which was quite funny. And I had to do a lit review on a leaky building in New Zealand and Vancouver and Seattle and other places around the state. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. Oh, it's a function of no consequences, right? Because in my view, specifically residential construction, I mean, it's an abusive relationship. And well, in Canada, the Condo Act here is just legalized abuse, right? They make you take half-built homes. There's no recourse, really. They tell you there is, there's none. But until consumers exercise their consumer power and refuse to accept this rubbish, it's going to be put on them, right? Construction firms and designers only react to two things, government legislation and how many dollars they can get. There is no yeah, other factors involved at all. I've had an idea for a long time, which we talk about down here. It's kind of builders shouldn't get to walk away at handover. They should actually have to stay involved 
And I personally think they should have to take out warranty insurance. So they take out a warranty for the life of the design life of the building where anything that goes wrong has to be fixed and they have to stand beside it. And the the insurance part is if they go bankrupt, then there's an insurance company that can come along and get things fixed as well. So when you sell a house as a builder, you should be signing up that design life 50 years, right? We'll be here for 50 years to fix every single thing that goes wrong. That will stop cheap practices because if builders are having to keep coming back all the time to fix things, they're going to start putting in better materials to start with because they don't want to be, they'll be spending more coming back than they ever yeah. made out of the project. It becomes so, yeah. We have a version of that here called Tarion, but it's a pure insurance scheme and it's abused. So the developer goes, oh, you got Tarion cover. And then good luck trying to get that paid out. You've got more chance of Queen of England mowing my lawn than getting money out of these people. So, you know. I think it's going to be the builders that come back. Yeah. It's got to be like a car where there is a long-term relationship and a maintenance relationship and a consequence, a consumer disloyalty consequence then you get what you're talking about. If you think about product satisfaction at the consumer level, automobile manufacturers you know, took a beating several decades ago and learned from that lesson. And nowadays, most vehicles are fairly reliable when you think about machine and machinery, right, as a consumer product. The CBE just did a research project here not too long ago, Center for the Built Environment for our listeners, looking at the satisfaction rate or compliance rate with ASHRAE Center 55, which is about an 80% target rate. When you look at the satisfaction the statistics is that roughly only 2% of the buildings that they studied were in compliance with ASHRAE 55 at the 80% satisfaction of 2%, right? If you include people who were happy and sort of happy, the number went from like 2%, I think, to 8%. And if you include the people that were happy, sort of happy, and yeah, okay, we'll live with it, it went up to as high as 34% or 35%. But, <laughs> but <laughs> think about the equivalent of that in any other consumer product, right? automobiles, appliances, recreational vehicle, whatever, those industries would be out of business. But for some reason, we tolerate such poor performance in the building construction industry, and that has to stop. It's abuse. It's because we don't, we don't let the people who are unsatisfied have a voice because there's no way for them to give feedback back to the people, whether it be a green building rating tool, a council, whoever, the developer. It's silent feedback because if you ever, and this is what uh, green building rating tools do again, they do post-occupancy evaluations to show how wonderful their building is. But when you move into something that's new, it's documented that you'll get like a new glow or a new green glow and it's all new and shiny. So yay, it's only when you've bed it in for a while, and it might take one to two years that you go, you know what, this sucks. It's my first winter and I'm freezing or... It's summer and my God, I'm dying. It's so hot. But people, unless you're getting regular feedback, and when I mean regular, I mean weekly, daily, like actual feedback from people living in the buildings, you're never going to know because if you only pick and post-occupancy evaluations will often be in a commercial building, say, they'll do it six months before they move. They'll do it straight after the move and then maybe they'll come back after another six months or a year. And it's a one-off survey. You can't draw conclusions from that. You need regular information. Like today it was too hot, tomorrow it was too cold. Amen. I'm miserable yeah. most of the time. And if yeah. you only do it, and most of them don't even do that six months follow-up, they just do pre and post and they get the green glow effect. Oh, these buildings are wonderful. Whereas if they came back every week for three years, they might get different answers. <laughs> yeah, one of the really good examples of this was the NRL building in Boulder, Colorado research facility. And what was awesome about that project, not only the not the building itself and the way the building was went out for tender and all of the, the specifications, which by the way, were all human factor based, was the post reviews that were done on a regular basis. Just like, just like you were saying, Rochelle. And in fact, at the last meetings, ASHRAE in Orlando, we had a 10-year report. So they've been actually recording post-occupancy evaluations for 10 years now. And these types of buildings and you actually kind of mentioned it there, they take two to three years to finally get the building tweaked to where they're actually, where the occupants and the building are at one. They're symbiotic with each other. If you don't have that feedback loop, how do you make the improvements? I would encourage our listeners that if you are following this and you understand what we're talking about here, research Colorado's NRL building, RSF building, and the 10-year report. And it's a great project and a great example of what we're talking about. Of what we should all be doing for yeah, every building. Absolutely. Absolutely. Rochelle, I want to touch on your PhD in the research. You've obviously done a ton of research and a lot of work. I've seen a few people do a PhD. It's grueling, I know. What were the top sort of like three to five things that sort of insights you got out of your research project? 
Well, when I started my PhD, I went in really loving green building rating tools. I was a believer. I've been a believer for many years. Lead, Bream, Green Star. I've delivered training. I've done these ratings, Homestar in New Zealand. So I went in as a believer. And even though you always go into research neutral, hand on heart, a little deep part of me was going, let's research this, get the proof that they work really well so we can make industry adopt them. This will be fantastic. This was kind of the idea to gather some of the proof because the proof wasn't there. After a three-year journey of research, reading what academics have, other academics have done, going myself and actually tracking down some of the founding fathers of Green Building Rating Tools, so people like Jerry Yudelson and Rob Watson, who were there at the start, and asking, I documented the history because I kind of went, why are all these rating tools design and construction-based? Why didn't we do performance rating tools? What was the reasoning here? And finding out some of those answers, I've done a complete... 180 and realized, like I've been saying, that they don't work. They were written by industry for industry so they can pat themselves on the back. No one's really all that interested in the performance. And if they are, they're finding that the performance isn't living up to the claims that are made about the buildings that the Green Building Councils, and I never thought this, and again, the people who work there are wonderful, their hearts are all in the right places. But the fact that most of them are there, it's a self-perpetuating myth. And I have this disagreement. They often say that they don't make money out of their rating tools. So the, the rating tools are a loss leader. And I guess they get all their money from their membership, which allows them to employ staff to do things. And I kind of go, well, if the rating tools don't make you money and the rating tools don't work, why do you have the rating tools? Like, why wouldn't you just get rid of them and then get out there? And this is what I think most green building councils should do now, personally. Forget about the rating tools, drop them, get out there, and what I would love to see is all the staff that you currently have, hire new ones as well. You'll have more money because the rating tools don't make any money for you. If This is what the New Zealand Green Building Council says, to be fair. They've told me. I don't know if the same is true for Australia or the US. They don't make money out of their rating tools. One would think that if it's something's losing you money, you'd stop doing it. But hey, <laughs> I would love to see them go and say, we're going to start at the architecture firms. We're going to start with A and we're going to send our staff in to make a meeting with all of them. And we're going to go talk to them about good building design and what a good building looks like. And how do you do it? What's important? And we're just going to go out and educate and inspire people. We're going to give them examples. They don't have to be rated by anything, but this is a good building. This is how it performs. This is what it looks like. This is how you need to design it. Because what I've seen is a lot of architects and engineers don't have a clue about what a good, healthy, healthy for humans, healthy for the planet building actually looks like. They don't have, they don't know how to do it. They don't get taught this in school. So where green building councils could really make a massive impact is getting out there and doing that specific education, not trying to shoehorn everything into a rating tool and then throwing badges on the buildings. So I would like to see that. And that's what I, where I've come to after three years of research, starting as a believer and ending up with a, we should get rid of them and focus on educating and inspiring people. So Rochelle, you realize that basically you're telling we're not saying all universities are doing a crappy job of educating their students, but you're saying most of them are. And I would I would tend to agree with that. I know no, when I, I, I a lot of architects and engineers who say the same things to me. They're like, and, and in New Zealand, <laughs> and I can really only speak majorly to New Zealand, they say for, for architects, when we get them, they know nothing. And we have to spend the first couple of years teaching them how to be a proper architect yeah. and probably engineer. <laughs> yeah. So here in Canada, we have, we're actually kind of fortunate in that aspect that we have a technology program or a technology route as opposed to a university route. They run in parallel, but the difference is, is that the university route is a four-year academic program, four years of articling before you get your license. The technology route is a two-year academic program and then six years of articling. So the technologist coming out of the program gets the bare bones, you know, and it's the fundamentals so that they can start working right away and then they take the next six years developing their skills and then they get their license. And Adam, you know this too, when we were hiring engineers like for our own engineering practices, we always, our preference was to hire an engineer that through university or college, their summer months was somebody that had worked on the tools, right? It, it, somebody that knew what it was like to be on a construction site, got to see the geometry because a lot of people can't see in 3D, right? We knew that an engineer or a technologist that had been on a job site had developed their sense of 3D to be able to see how things fit together and see the relationships made way better practitioners, way better practitioners than just the pure academics. Yeah, I started as a city and guilds technician in London. That's why I did two years city and guilds refrigeration and conditioning. That was my first college course, evenings and one full day. And it was tough. I would say, so after having done the passive house training and I 
obviously been through engineering school. I've been through a master's degree. I learned more in the two weeks where I did the passive house consultant training <laughs> about building physics and building science yep. than I have done in my entire career. And I, if I could rule the world, if it's God shell, goddess shell, maybe we should say, <laughs> comes to make decisions for the planet, I would send everybody, and I mean everybody, every builder, tradesperson, plumber, HVAC, architect, engineer, I would get them to do that two-week course before they could build another thing. And they would just come out with a basic understanding of building physics. What does a thermal envelope do? Why is it important we don't drill holes in it? Like We need air tightness. It's the best, most important. <laughs> Formative course I've ever done in my entire life, and it should be mandatory at any school around the world that wants to put out somebody who's then qualified to do something yeah. with building, including FMs, yeah. facility yeah, managers yeah. for people who don't talk in acronyms. Best thing you can do. The Edifice Complex will continue in just a moment. If you're enjoying this podcast, we need your help. We're not asking for money, just a minute of your time. Our goal is to make the Edifice Complex podcast as relevant, educational, and useful as possible. By having good ratings, we can reach the widest audience. Therefore, our request is two small things. If you haven't already, leave us a review and rating on iTunes. And subscribe to the Edifice Complex on YouTube, even if you normally only listen to the audio version. These two things will help us immensely. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. Thanks for your time, and now, back to the show. I think there's a massive educational and business opportunity here in bridging that gap between academic education and like like hands-on education, like Talk to future practitioners by old practitioners, like almost like an apprenticeship type thing, you know, where a wise Obi-Wan takes you under his wing, abuses you just a little bit, but teaches you all he knows, you know? <laughs> yeah. I was lucky like enough to have that for a while, and it sort of, whilst it was not not great, he used to get me out of bed. If I was up late, this dude would be in my kitchen. My mum would be giving me a cup of tea, and he'd look at me like... <laughs> As long as he's teaching you good skills, what we get in New Zealand, all our old builders, when it's only um, in 2000 and somewhere between 2007 and 2009 that our building code changed that everything had to be double glazing in residential dwellings. So, and all the builders are like, why do we need double glazing? Single glazing is just fine. And, you know, that's wow. within this trick. So, you're like, well, we don't want old builders teaching people coming through that kind of stuff. As long no. as they've got the knowledge and experience to, deliver good building information then yes yeah that's interesting but adam you and i have talked about this before where we look at building codes and building codes and building code education teaches the tradespeople how to put things together but not necessarily why yes and there's so there's a huge gap between the how and the why and i think we certainly believe that if when we can start to train these individuals that put buildings together the why that we'll also see incremental improvements in the building construction and I think that's where the passive house part really came in for me. It was just this whole information. And don't get me wrong, it was intense and it's very physics heavy, but you got to really, and this is why it's really good for architects and engineers who are already in that kind of space. They need to know this information because it is the why. This is why this is important. This is how it affects the occupant health. This is how it will affect the energy efficiency. Like stop mm-hmm. building these colossal homes, particularly you guys over there. Stop building your, you know, mansions, your mansions. We can all get get away with smaller homes. Agreed. Yeah, I mean, one thing I noticed when I moved to Canada from the UK, cars are big and cheap. Gas, as far as I'm concerned, is almost free here. And houses are just twice as big as they need to be, right? <laughs> really it's just insane, right? Especially yeah. when you're used to living. I used to live in a bed set in London. So. Oh, yeah, yeah <laughs> I've seen that yeah. movie. <laughs> so, I, I, well, you know, it's funny. I have a book coming out on thermal comfort for residential buildings, and I use the term flamboyant architecture. Uh, because that's what it is. And it's about aesthetics. It's about catering to the visual stimulation of the human mind. And it usurps the other sensory systems, unfortunately, including good logic, you know, common sense. And so how we change flamboyant architecture to conservative architecture in North America, I don't know, Rochelle, maybe you guys are, in that sense, can maybe influence us. I don't think no. we're going to be able to change without external yeah, influence. We're I don't know. Years behind you, so we're just following your pathway. Our houses are getting bigger as well. Oh, I think yeah, we need to do. Us. 
No, we're already on the pathway. It's quite sad. But what we need to do is we need to get out to the consumers and nobody talks with the occupants again. So this is where the Green Building Council should be getting out and talking to the people and saying, this is why you don't want to buy that big house. It is going to be cold. It's going to be drafty. It's going to be expensive to heat. Looks great. But look at this one over here. Also looks great. A little bit smaller. You're going to be much happier in here. And doing that kind of thing, they all do it. But it's very much a nod to it rather than, and again, it's often around getting industry in and educating the industry. They don't go out to mum and dad. They don't go down to the daycares and do a seminar for all the parents in each daycare centre across the country about this is why it's important to keep your home this temperature. This is how you can do it. This is what it looks like and the reasons why. Nobody does that. And that's where we're missing, missing the value. And I often talk about these days the virtue signaling of green building rating tools. And I actually had a job interview and I won't mention anything, but I asked them, why did you do Homestar? And what you see, and you'll see it around the world, is people will be using, and they talk about this too, they're going to be using green building rating tools because then they can get green bonds. And it happens all all around the place or where you get our Grisby, it helps us with Grisby. And it's no one cares about the performance. It's like, mm. I've got my rating. I've got my finance. I don't care how it actually performs. It's great. I've, my, I've signaled my virtue. This is why I'm a member of a green building council. I'm signaling my virtue. Are they giving me any value? Probably not. I've actually even had architects say to me, we don't understand what value we get out of our membership. And it's like, well, you get to stick the logo on your website and everywhere else. And people understand that you think green building is important. But we need to move away from the virtue signaling. We need to move away from the green bonds and the finance. And we need to move towards something that actually delivers the healthy aspects that we need. And I keep saying it, health for the occupants, health for the planet. We need to find that. And then we can start talking about green again. Yeah, move to outcomes. But you're right. I think the green building movement's turned into a cult. And now passive homes and Teslas are the new virtue signaling for the rich, right? I must admit, I still like passive house, uh, oh, yeah. mostly because... Love it. It is a standard. There's no ratings involved either. Well, it was a standard. I had an argument with them about this because they're now moving into the rating levels thing. So you've got Passive House, Classic, Premium, and Plus, and then you're getting the low energy. They're they're starting. They were great. Living Building Challenge has done exactly the same thing. So you used to just have the Living Building Challenge standard, whereas you had to do everything to get the certification. It was a standard. Now they've got little levels they've got core you can do pedal certification it's like you're undermining the value of what you had so but when you go back to the core passive house standard the original it was good and it it means that it will be warm dry and comfortable and it will be low energy which i don't necessarily mind that cold as much because i know that it's going to deliver healthy buildings i've got to ask my so my daughter's in her third year of a mechanical engineering career. So when I saw her go through university as a young woman and like seeing her break into the workforce, seeing the world through her eyes was fascinating for me. Have you faced any issues as a female in a predominantly male industry and then sort of challenging what you're challenging? Have you seen any, any, any issues with that? No, not in terms of sexism. I've always had a lot of issues in terms of what I'm saying, but nothing that is gender-based. The only time I ever experienced any sexism was working in the UK which may be part of the issue. So I've worked in the UK, the Middle East, the US, New Zealand, and I've never really had any problems except for a couple of incidents in the UK, which I'd have got a little bit like you've denigrated what I've said just because I'm a young female. But generally, most people throughout my career have listened to what I've said with respect. They might not agree with me, but they haven't pushed it to one side just because I'm A, younger or B, a female, which is great. I think that shows some growth. Yeah, that's awesome. And that's that's really what I want to hear because, you know, the more people that hear that, the better, right? There's just, I think it's starting to change. There's a lot more females moving into engineering and STEM. I think that's a great thing, but not enough, you know? Why isn't it sort of more of a 40-50 split, something like that? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's changing a little bit. It is getting there. It's changing. Certainly in my career span, it's changed a lot. And, uh, you know, I'd like to see it change a lot again for my daughter, really, and she's in the early days well, I had a little experience last what was last week or the week before. Before we went down into lockdown here in New Zealand, I went into a professional project management firm that I've known and worked with for 20 years. So one of my first ever job actually as a project manager with my dad building marinas was with this particular firm. And back in the day, it was male. I, I don't remember other than the receptionists and maybe like the office manager. I don't remember any other females in that firm. So I went back to this firm the other day and I sat in reception waiting for the men or the man I was waiting to meet and the only people I saw walk through the whole office were females that to the point awesome. where I actually commented to the next point and saying 
are there any guys still here? And <laughs> it was interesting. There was a couple of reasons we were going, well, maybe all the women come to work later. Maybe they're getting the kids to school. Who knows? I actually don't think most of them had kids. Maybe the boys start earlier. Um, but when I actually went into the meeting, I had a chat to them about it. And I said, look, I really noticed this. This was unusual. Have you changed your policy? And they do have a diversity strategy. And they said that their mix is around 50-50. So that That's great. big change That's in the industry great. that yeah. I could see just in that one little incident. That's, that's good, and that's really cool. And also, their leadership roles, particularly, right? If you're a project manager, you're leading the project to a large degree, right? So it's, it's not a soft role, it's a hard role. Yeah, yeah and you've yeah. got to be there. And, and I, my career, personally, and this is probably why I don't really mind standing up and saying things, I most of the time would sit in a meeting with 30 people leading the meeting. I'd be the only female in the room. So I think you, you'd learn a little bit of resilience from that. So it's great to see other ladies coming through doing the same thing. Yeah, and that's a story that sort of has run through the theme when we've had women on uh, to interview is that the sense of resiliency, but also every one of them has said, you know, be strong in your beliefs, do really good in your job. And in fact, as you know, better than anybody else if you can, and let your work stand as your witness, right? And we've had some women on that when I think, you know, Adam, Cecilia down in Mexico, who had yeah. some insecure men in her career that you know sabotage some of the projects that she was working on and in hindsight it's embarrassing really you know but adam you've seen that in your own practice right yeah yeah you, i've you, seen a lot of change i've seen a lot of change but there are still some horrific things that happen to women in the workforce right i don't mean attacks i just mean like attitude and there's just a presupposition that they shouldn't be doing something in some cases do you know what i mean and it's that embedded presuppositions you got to get rid of i think and that only happens yeah. when you see the example like that project management firm you're discussing, right? There's no presupposition there that half of them shouldn't be there, right? They're just there and it just becomes the new reality, right? So, you know, as more people come in, it becomes a new reality, then I'm pretty sure my son wouldn't even notice something like that, right? It wouldn't be an issue for him, right? No, (laughs) it would be just the norm perhaps. Yeah, exactly. It would just be something he accepts because that's just what's around him all the time. Whereas myself, I've I've had a 39-year career, right? I'm old. And I've seen that arc from like Don Draper, yeah. Mad Men days to where we are now. It's was, it was quite a ride. <laughs> yeah. So we're coming up towards the end. We'd like to keep it to about now, but I've got one more question to ask you before we get to the rapid fire questions. So one of the things that sort of made me notice you was some of the sort of attacks you were getting with some of the information you put out. So who have been your like biggest, not attackers is the wrong word, but people who have been like throwing the most rocks at you with what you've been putting out? Well, it's interesting because no one's done it in public. You know, if you go look on anywhere I've said anything that you don't really, I'm not really being attacked. I know it's happening in private though, because people tell me. So I think the people who are most concerned about what I'm saying are the people, and I say it's got a vested interest. They have a vested interest in what I'm saying isn't working, which is obviously green building rating tools and people who strongly support them and want their, their use. So I'm obviously challenging the very basis of an institution around the world and I'm saying I don't think it works and fair enough they're going to defend and come back and say yes it does actually what I have really noticed is complete and utter silence so anything I talk about online <laughs> and, and very smart strategy they just don't respond to it I even commented on a Green Building Council of Australia business case that was published this week and I said I look see. you haven't even engaged the academic literature haven't heard yeah. anything from that the World Green Building Council shared that and I made the same comment Nothing. They just, they're not engaging. It's a very, very smart strategy move because I think they know if they do engage, they won't get anywhere. So behind the scenes, they've got the support they need. Yeah, I mean, if the World Green Building Council started like attacking you online, they'd just look so petty, right? And it would just big you up. It's a great strategy by then. They're just hoping you're going to go away. (laughs) I think so. And they're probably right. I mean, I'm just one little person. I'm trying to talk about it. I'm really interested in talking to engineers and architects and professors and anyone just to share the knowledge and say, this is what I found. I'm not saying I'm 100% right. This is just the research. We need to research it more. We need to understand are these things working. Let's go out and talk openly about it. And if it's not working, let's change it. Let's do something that does work. That's the conversation I'm interested in having. I'm not getting much from the other side. So I'm always a bit worried that I'm just finding fellow people who think like I do. I'd like to engage with the people who believe that it's working and find out why, find out what's their proof. Why do they believe it? What evidence do they have? Maybe I'm missing something, but there's just silence. You should put a speaking proposal out for a charge to any Green Building Council. I'll come in and speak. 
let me know. Yeah. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> no, no, that, that would be crickets at that point, right? <laughs> yeah, I think it's already cricket. I mean, I have spoken at a number of Green Building Council events in New Zealand in the past. I talk, I go and speak at a lot of conferences, yeah. but I have a feeling that little run's come to an end. So yeah. I'll have to find other platforms to talk on. Yeah, you need a new agent, I think. You can't <laughs> You mentioned him earlier on. Jerry Udelson's been saying this kind of stuff for years. Well, he's yeah, written a whole he book. He's written a whole book about why it should change. Yeah. 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 But he's on this, like, because he's at the end of his career and he's, he's like yeah, the godfather of green, he's, he's up on this little pedestal and they don't like to knock him off that, right? It wouldn't be good I... PR. <laughs> so he gets a pass. But if you're young and up and coming, I don't think you get a pass. You get ignored, it looks like, right? <laughs> It was actually really funny. I um, There's the podcast Green Building Matters by Charlie Cicchetti, and he had Jerry on, and I listened to that podcast expecting to hear potentially some criticisms of lead and all the rest of it. Nothing. Jerry was really polite and didn't oh. criticize lead at all in that entire podcast. And I was like, wow, that was not what I expected when I was going to listen to this podcast. I, oh. I thought it might be a bit more confronting. But obviously, um, Charlie Cicchetti, for an example, is a big believer. He has an entire business predicated around green building and particular lead, including his podcasts and books and consultancies. So you don't want to, if someone invites you to talk about your history and your career, you, you probably are going to be a little bit polite. <laughs> we interviewed Jerry. He was a bit more scathing about it, but he wasn't like aggressively bad about it, right? He was just saying, look, this has got to change. It needs to evolve. You know, he'd been sensible and grown up, right? <laughs> Yeah, where no one's, and I, I think we were all going, the people who, I mean, I'm one of these people. We all started it for the same reasons. I was around when the Green Building Council of New Zealand was created, and I've helped write the rating tools. So I have skin in the game. I'm, I'm partly to blame for these things not working. It's my fault. And standing up and saying we need to openly talk about it, look at them, and, and hopefully change. Great. Absolutely. Okay, so we're wrapping up now. So we normally ask each of us ask you a quick fire question, right? So I'll go first because I'm talking. So what would your advice be to young graduates coming out of engineering architectural classes? You know, knowing what you know now about the world and you finish this research project, what advice would you give them moving into their career? Go do the passive house course. Yeah, that's a good I like that. Couldn't say anything else. Go do the passive house course. You will learn more in that couple of weeks than you will have your entire studies. And you'll design better buildings out of it. I like that. Great answer. So you're talking to a bunch of kids that are in grade nine, grade 10, teenagers, have a passion for science. Where should they go with their careers with the passion for science? Uh, with passion for science, I think you should think, what do you like? Which part of science? And then go get work experience in it. Don't go study it straight away. Go get a job, learn, find out what part you actually enjoy. And this is as someone who went and did electrical engineering who really should have done civil. If I'd gone into the industry and actually worked that out, I'd have a different degree. So if you think you like something, go for take it for a test drive. Don't go buy it straight away. So don't go buy oh. your career without doing your test drive. Actually, oh, I love that. Good observation because you started electrically, right? And you really wound up in the civil and then even you sort of superseded that in a way, right? I have. I did the wrong degree and that's always one of my regrets. I should have done what my I should have done what my daddy told me to do. He said I should have done civil engineering. <laughs> and I went, No, you don't know. I want to do electrical. So just FYI to one of us says I'm a dad, listen to your dad, right? <laughs> Please <laughs> listen to your dad. <laughs> He's not the idiot you think he is. <laughs> We have that conversations every day. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. What I think my partner was saying, to, you know, like, if you know so much right now at this age, you should move out right now. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that will last. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. Okay, well, look, Rochelle, thank you very much for coming on. It was great. I really enjoyed it. And it was really good to get your insight on that because – my thinking isn't as structured as yours, but I'm sort of in the same place, really, where I think green building certification systems is an S-curve that's flattening out. And I personally believe that 5G and the internet of things and the falling cost to actually monitor things in real time might be a game changer in terms of bringing some transparency. Yep, it's already a game changer. You can yeah. see it. It's, it's the start of that curve is coming up. Yeah, couldn't agree more. Well, thanks for holding on to your passion and standing up for what you believe in. And you certainly attracted Adam and I, uh, our attention, because we've both been agitators our entire life. And 
had we not stuck to our guns, we wouldn't have made the changes that we've made. We've, I think we've made some changes, and so yeah. we're glad to see you on, on the team. Welcome to the team, Rochelle. <laughs> Thank you. This is a resistance. <laughs> so I thought Rochelle was excellent. You know, I, what I loved was that she's had these, like, 10-year pivots, you know. Yep. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, the way she's come up through her career and her education and her practical experience that has allowed her to make some really strong observations of the industry, the flaws, drawing that line in the sand and standing on her side of the line and saying, you know what, what you guys are doing is not all smoke and mirrors, but the truth isn't out the way it should be out. And here's why. And she's sticking to it. And I love that. Yeah. I mean, what occurred to me was as well, how her career is really a modern career in that, like, she acknowledged she'd done the wrong degree, but she didn't like the sunk cost fallacy didn't stick in. She went on to something else, right? Yeah. And then she's had these 10 year career pivots. And that's really what modern careers are going to be like, you know? It's not normal going forward, I don't think, that the job you do in your first five years is a job you'll continue with, or necessarily the profession you'll continue with right. till yeah. you retire, right? You're more likely to do these pivots into adjacent spaces. And she's a good example of that, actually. I, I like that. And the fact that she's, yeah. uh, I love that conclusion. I started off as a believer in building rating systems, and my conclusion is they've got to go. That is. Because, <laughs> again, no sunk cost fallacy there, right? If you've sunk a large part of your career into that, you're more inclined to want to perpetuate it, right, than try and yeah. change it. Yeah. She probably gave some of the best career advice. Test. I, I wrote down, test drive your passion. You know, that if you, that if you just sort of have an idea what you like in high school, that rather than jump right into, you know, academia, go try jobs that sort of speak to what you're interested in. And see if you really like it in the real world. And then if it does, then follow that, right? Yeah, absolutely. There were some great gems there, actually. I loved your one about if a blind person walks into a building, does he know if it's a commercial or a residential <laughs> building? So I, know. I know. Isn't it? I know. People don't think about that, right? Yeah. The body doesn't know. When it can't see anything, you make judgments with your other sensory systems. And it doesn't know whether it's in a church, a hospital, a school, or a no. home, right? Just knows he was covered. So what you can take away from that nugget <laughs> is that residential building is basically being classed as a second class yeah. building type, right? Yeah, that's a good observation. <laughs> I like that. That's a good observation. And yeah, you're right, it is. And that's wrong because that's where we spend most of our time. You know, Adam, it's interesting in my classes or courses, sometimes I ask, if you had a preference to die in a modern healthcare facility that's designed, you know, for indoor environmental quality, healing, right? Yeah. Or die at home, where would you prefer to die? And most people, like 99.99% of people want to die at home. And then I take them down this discussion. Yeah, but your house was never designed for a space of healing. It was designed so that it doesn't kill you. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's right. And that's a different environment than a modern healthcare facility, right? So ultimately, homes become an extension of an institutional healthcare system, but we don't design them that way. Yeah. And it was also interesting to me that Asia Pacific, or specifically Australia and New Zealand, have the same issues we've been battling with with Canada, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I was surprised to hear them have their leaky building syndrome when we had been through that you know, almost 20 some years ago. And what people didn't learn from our mistakes, like we, you know, Canada at one time was the darling of building science, right? And we lost grounding in that area. And as a result, the things that happened in Vancouver kind of led to us being exposed to our ignorance and letting economics and the market drive science. Basically, science got set aside for the dollar, right? Yeah, what happened. also, I think, because, I mean, the construction lobby in Canada, certainly in Toronto, is strong, and they rule this place. You know, you're not getting anything legislated unless they've had their nose in it some way or the other, right? Yeah. And, you know, that is a problem, I think, because the politics around construction are unions here and then lobby groups. There's no design lobby, so they've got no voice. And then the politicians are all about the money or getting re-elected. So there's a bad, that's a bad combination of things that doesn't lead to a good consumer outcome or user outcome normally. <laughs> no, and when and when you think about it, both of those areas, the politics and the building industry, are actually there to serve society. Yeah. 
one is funded by taxpayers' dollars. The other one is funded through profits from the taxpayer, right? <laughs> yeah. So they're both deriving their existence through the money through the consumer base, but yet they don't actually serve the consumer in a way that the consumer needs. That's a pretty interesting story right there. But also what you can see, the Green Building Councils now, let's take the US Green Building Council as one of the biggest, most cash-rich building councils in the world, right? It's evolved to be a bureaucracy, a bit like a union has evolved to be a bureaucracy. So then it gets to a certain size where its perpetuation is its mission, right? Oh, right, It needs yeah. the money. It needs to support the people. You can't let anyone off. I mean, Service Canada here, which is where how a lot of our government services are given to us here for international listeners, is, you know, whenever, whenever they try and reduce the number of people employed by Service Canada, the unions come and go, no, no, you can't fire these people. Half, I mean, all the services could be issued online, most of them, right? But you can't get rid of these people because you get lose jobs and people vote and there's a voting block with the unions, right? The whole thing. And I think this is the battle. The Green Building Council's Green Building now is in a position where it employs people, it has CEOs, it has an infrastructure, and that ain't going to go away willingly, right? And it employs True. thousands of people now, right? Yep. So yep. it's become a thing unto itself. So to, to achieve Rochelle's sort of goal of making it outcome oriented and get rid of rated systems, you've got to take them people with you. Otherwise they're gonna fight you tooth and nail. Yeah. Right? Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So yeah. I don't know, we're getting into some philosophy and economics here, which are I think are the two most underrated subjects. History, <laughs> philosophy and economics are the three most underrated subjects. They should be compulsory all the way through to the degree level. Yeah, because I agree. you've got to wrap that into what's going on in the world, right? I agree. Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. There's there there some deep stuff there, but I loved her work. I love what she's doing. Me too. I love that conclusion at the end of her PhD. Yep. I'll have to sit in on her defense of that. Well, I think we just got to get rid of all these green building councils. End. <laughs> Mic drop. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of drop draws in that room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it, it's interesting, man. I'd, uh, I couldn't do that. I couldn't throw myself through three years of research, particularly if I came out with a conclusion that didn't. Didn't yeah. support my worldview. It'd be tough to do. Well, I'm glad we had her on. I'm glad we gave her a voice, and and uh, we'll certainly follow her career wherever she goes. And kudos to her for sticking to her guns. Yeah, that's absolutely what I, right. That's yeah, yep. damn right. Okay, man, that was a good one. See you in the next one. All right, Adam. Take care. You've been listening to the Edifice Complex podcast with Adam Muggleton and Robert Bean. To access show notes for this episode, visit edificecomplexpodcast.com. Also, if you would like Robert or Adam to speak, teach, or consult on your project or business, please email admin at edificecomplexpodcast.com. See you next time. Adam, it's time to thank some people who are on our side because we're on their side. You found a new tool, software. Blue Rhythm commissioning software. Robert, I sure have. I think Blue Rhythm is what I've been looking for all these years. Building commissioning can be chaos at the best of times. Most projects I consult on really suffer from poor information management. You know, it's 2019, yet the property and construction industry seems to be firmly stuck in the 20th century paperwork world. I think people mistake emails and PDFs and Microsoft files on their servers and all the different PCs as a digital solution. In reality... It's just unorganized chaos. Do you want to streamline your commissioning process and save time and money? Do you want to go paperless and increase efficiency? Blue Rhythm is a cloud-based software solution built specifically for building commissioning professionals. Blue Rhythm digitizes your custom forms and checklists, allows collaboration across project teams, and automates reporting, leaving you to focus on what matters. Their team help you onboard the test sheets you've developed over the years. You can even send it some in paper, and they will... Digitize that and put it in the Blue Rhythm system for you. In my opinion, Blue Rhythm pays for itself in time saved on paperwork on a single project. For a demo or to start a free trial, go to bluerhythm.com. That's where rhythm is spelled R-I-T-H-M like algorithm. Bluerhythm.com. Tell them the Edifice Complex sent you there.